It's an honor to introduce today's speaker, uh, Michael McAfee comes to us from Oklahoma City. Uh, he's still a student for a few more months, finishing his MDiv. Uh, he has his uh, degree in letters from University of Oklahoma. And Michael now is working for the Museum of the Bible uh, near the White House. You'll see uh, some pictures here in a moment. And he travels uh, the world, actually, speaking on behalf of the museum uh, in the area of Bible engagement. You'll hear a little bit of his passion. Uh, just to share a couple things with Michael, um, I'd also like to add that several of our faculty have been involved with the research of the Museum of the Bible from uh, Bud Bentz and Ken Shank and David Riggs and, and just various others over the last few years on some of the ancient manuscripts associated with it. His wife, Lauren, was the first employee of the Museum of the Bible, or one of the first two, and I was privileged to be one of the first four, and so we go uh, way back. Um, I think it's fitting to introduce him this way, and you'll get to know his heart in just a second. I'd like for you to imagine someone besides Donald Trump who is the wealthiest person that you can envision. It can be Donald Trump. Man or woman, who would that person be? And I'd like to imagine you getting a phone call asking you to come work full time for that person in a dream job. I don't know what that dream job would be for you. And I'd like for you to imagine God tapping you on the shoulder for a couple years every time the call comes and it came often and turning it down. That's what Michael McAfee did. In addition to that, that person was his father-in-law. So that's a double whammy there, uh, listening to God and turning down your father-in-law who uh, was running Hobby Lobby. His wife, Lauren, is a good friend and uh, a child of a sweetheart. Uh, they married, um, have been married uh, quite a while. So Michael did that. He then accepted the position part-time, minimum wage. And so when you see Michael standing here today, he was on a similar journey to where a lot of you are but he still keeps his foot in the church, and he's a teaching pastor at his church, and he um, has really given his uh, heart and soul to the Lord in ministry. One last uh, quick tidbit about Mike and Lauren. They felt God uh, leading them to New York City. They moved to New York City. They landed at the airport within five hours. Uh, they planned this ahead of time. They set the record for the quickest from the airport to Tim Keller's church. They went to a Bible study the very night they arrived. We had dinner with Tim not long ago, and that night we were talking about the story. And then the next day, Michael gets a call from the museum. They asked them to move from New York City back to Oklahoma City, and he did that, and he's doing a great job for us. Michael, thank you for coming here today. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you, uh, President Wright, Dr. Newman, for the uh, privilege to come and speak to you. Uh, I've known Dr. Pattengale a, uh, a very long time, several years, and he is not only a, a brilliant scholar, as you know, but he is, he is such a good friend to me. And so it has been so fun uh, to get to just explore the campus a little bit with him over the past day. Went to the basketball game last night for a bit, um, and I am just so encouraged by all of you. Uh, you all have come here to prepare yourself for a lifetime of ministry, and uh, even though I don't, I don't know you, you don't know me, I don't know anything 
about you personally. Uh, I am so encouraged and so hopeful for the future, uh, not just of our, our country, which often gets looked at, but, but of the church of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for coming and, and planting here and doing your studies. Before we uh, dive into the, the message this morning, I wanted to bring you a bit of an update from Museum of the Bible. Um, as Jerry mentioned, I've worked there now for, uh, for several years. It was a, a difficult decision for me to come uh, because, and, and it was really difficult to turn down my in-laws. That, that created some interesting family dynamics around the dinner table. Um, but the, the reason was because I have a passion and a love uh, for the local church and for uh, pastors and ministers and, and volunteers and, and staff members and, uh, and a love for uh, Christian higher education. And so uh, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for investing your life in this area. So Museum of the Bible. Museum of the Bible is set to open later this year. Um, I've got some, some slides here that we'll just kind of go through fairly quickly. Um, so go ahead and, uh, oh, there's me. That's my wife, Lauren. She is awesome. So uh, yeah, she's really pretty and uh, inside and out. Um, we met at age seven and I just like, guys, take, this is a good this is good life advice, okay? God's will for your life, that's kind of the theme. You find an awesome, godly, beautiful young woman and don't be afraid of the friend zone. You just like become friends with her and like do that thing a long time. Eventually, she's gotta, she's gotta give you a shot. That's how it works for us anyway. So, um, so Lauren and I dated uh, throughout college. We got married at the University of Oklahoma where we did our undergrad together. And so um, that's my wife. I'm sorry, I wish she could be here, um, but you're stuck with me today. So. Next slide. Um, so this is Museum of the Bible. This is at our location. If you have not been to Washington, D.C., everything is within about a half-mile radius or so. Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, um, White House, Library of Congress, the U.S. Capitol, Supreme Court. Everything's right there, including the two major, the two best-attended museums every year um, are right off the mall as well. And they're right here, uh, two blocks from us, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Museum of the Bible is three blocks from the Capitol. We are right in the heart of D.C. We, have, we are currently the largest museum under construction anywhere in the world today. When this is completed, it will be one of the three largest museums in all of D.C. We can go to the next slide. I'll show you a little bit of it. Um, this is the ballroom at the top of the glass dome that you'll see in a minute. And when you look out, I wanted to put this picture up there, not only because it'd be great to have chapel there one day, amen, um, but also because you can see the Capitol Dome right outside the window, and that's very lifelike. We have an unobstructed view of the U.S. Capitol um, at Museum of the Bible. Let's go to the next slide. So when you come, this is what the building looks like. It's a gorgeous red brick building that we have completely renovated from the inside out. Um, it will be a magnificent. Actually, a few uh, weeks ago, earlier this month, CNN came out with an article of the seven museums around the world that are opening this year, um, and along that list was one in the United States, and it was Museum of the Bible. So uh, next slide, I'll show you a little bit of the inside. We, we have three major themes. One is that we want to tell the stories of the Bible. So you can see this is the Old Testament. We'll have Old Testament stories that are very immersive, fun, uh, Disney-esque almost, if you will. Um, you can go to the next slide. We'll, uh, we'll show you a recreated Nazareth. So if you've not been to Israel, if you've not had a chance to go on a passages trip or covenant journey, as it was called, um, this will be an opportunity for you to see that. Um, we'll also have an impact floor. That'll show you the way the Bible has impacted the world. So how it's impacted America, how it's impacted other parts of culture, uh, government, uh, business, etc. How's the Bible changed our world? 
And then, of course, we'll have an area, not only a floor that shows the history of it, uh, but we'll, we have major artifacts. Uh, Christian Askelian, one of our scholars, studying them. And so um, great technology within the museum as well. So you can see that, that ceiling in the lobby. It's actually a digital ceiling that can change by the minute, by the second, by the day. Um, and when you come in, you'll have a tablet. This is really cool. So to see everything at Museum of the Bible, it would take you nine, eight-hour days for when you plan your trip. Nine, eight-hour days. So when you come, when you come to this lobby, we'll give you a tablet, and you can answer a few diagnostic questions of your likes, dislikes, interests, and, uh, and as well, how much information you want. Do you want the PhD scholarly level, or do you want the, you know, the high level, I've never read the Bible before in my life, or do you want something in between? And so um, that will curate a tour for you based on your interests, based on the time you have, and the amount of information you want. It's going to be completely one of a kind and make your experience uh, personalized, uh, customizable. Next slide. Um, and of course, we have, a, we have a roller coaster of sorts in there. We were trying to get a real roller coaster. We got a, a flyboard theater. So this was, a, uh, this was developed by NASA and Boeing to give you the sensation that you're actually flying through Washington, D.C., and you'll see all of the monuments and founding documents where scripture is quoted or, or referenced. So, um, and then finally, we have a curriculum, which... You should be very proud. This curriculum that we have uh, includes many of the latest uh, technology features that I've mentioned, but also um, it was developed by our very own Dr. Jerry Pattengale, um, who uh, is pictured here. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, Jesse, that's my fault. I, I think I've got a, a better picture of him, a more current one. There he is. Okay. There's Jerry. Um, uh, in all honesty, Dr. Pattengale has, uh, has head up our curriculum, which is being used by 100,000 students. 100,000 students today are using Dr. Pattengale's curriculum in Israel. In Israel. Uh, we have this curriculum that's available in there, the United Kingdom, several other countries, as well as homeschools and private schools around the country. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I cannot tell you I know that you are. You should be so proud of, uh, of Dr. Jerry Pattengale and his wife, Cindy, for, for the travel that he does, the time he spends away from here and away from his home uh, to make this possible. It is incredible. The lives that are being changed. Eight, over 80% of students that go through this curriculum on the high school level at the end of, uh, of the year say the Bible is as important or more important than any other subject that they're studying currently. They get it. They understand it. Yeah. And, and it is, the Lord has used uh, Dr. Pattengill's work mightily. And so uh, that's, the, that's the curriculum. Please. So Museum of the Bible is opening in November. We would love to have you come. Uh, great field trip, uh, President Wright. So uh, come out and uh, spend some time with us. There are many initiatives, many um, experiences that we would love to uh, expose you to there. And so that's Museum of the Bible. Now, I mentioned uh, the reason um, in part that I got involved was because, well, ultimately it was because I felt the Lord leading me, which is what you've been talking about in your, your chapel sessions, at least the beginning of, of this semester, right? The way of God, living out God's will for your life. Living, what does it mean to live out God's will? And that was something that was important to me because I felt called to ministry. Um, but I went to the University of Oklahoma and I had two experiences when I was in college that completely reshaped my life, completely changed who I am today. Uh, trials, this, these were periods of, of, um, of great difficulty. Uh, maybe you can relate. 
maybe you've gone through great difficulty or, or, or going through it right now. Um, so one of them was, uh, I'll get to the second one later, but the first one was a trial of, of facts. When I was in college at the University of Oklahoma, as Jerry mentioned, I had a I got a Bachelor of Arts in Letters and a Religious Studies minor, the exact same as my wife. Just took all the classes with her. I figured she'd have to talk to me, right? And so, um, and she did. We got married. So, worked out. When I was there, there was a speaker coming who, if we went to hear his lecture, we got extra credit. And I always needed extra credit. And so, I gladly went to get extra credit. And uh, this speaker um, is, a, uh, is, a, is a known scholar, and he told us all the reasons why we should not trust the Bible, why it had been fabricated and forged and, and mistranslated and, and, and miscopied throughout centuries. And as a sophomore, a 19-year-old who grew up in the church and, and loved Jesus and loved my Bible, I just had never heard any of this. And, and it didn't rock my, my faith. Maybe you're like, maybe you've had an experience like this. I didn't lose my belief in God, but I I started asking myself the question, like, what are the facts about this book? What is going on um, that, is it true that it's been miscopied and it shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be trusted? And it's come to find when you, when you hear the other side of the story and kind of hear more information about a textual criticism and, and how, in fact, there may have been a, an error here or there, but, but none of the errors have to do with any major doctrine and, and they're um, they're fairly minor in terms of copies where 90% roughly of, of all manuscripts agree um, on any particular passage. And so as I began to study this, I, I had confidence, but then it, be, it began this question of, well, how do I help so that others that have the same questions might have their questions answered? How can I help be a part of, a, of preventing someone from going through these trials? These trials shape you into the men or women you become. As I mentioned, they, they set the trajectory for my life. And so we're talking today about the plans God has for you. If you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it up, uh, either on your app or, or if you have a, an old school, you know, pages and magic thread and everything, uh, Bible. Go ahead and open it up to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're talking about the plans God has for you. You are not here by accident. It's not a coincidence that you came here. God, God has a plan for your life, and the education you're receiving right now will prepare you for a lifetime of ministry. Uh, Dr. Pattengill and I last night, as we left the gymnasium, he was talking to me about when he first came as a, as a freshman here to Indiana Wesleyan University, and talking about what his life was like at that time, and, and, and seeing the campus, and and all that's happened from that day to now, you know, um, 12 years later, now that he's in his mid-30s, uh, he would not have believed you. He would have called you crazy if you would have told him all the things that he would accomplish, that he would be uh, doing all that he's doing today, that he would have produced this curriculum, helped launch this museum, that he would have been a university professor here at, at the campus that he was attending, that he would have, he has a book that released today, faith made real. I mean, if you, if you told him all the things that, the, that God had planned for him, he would have said, you're crazy. In the same way, God has plans for you. God has plans for your life that if we were to tell you today what those are, you would not believe it. And it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that it will lead to any kind of, um, of fame or significance that this world would take notice of. 
But God has plans for you for his kingdom that will rock your world and will change the kingdom forever. So as we look at this, I want to, he mentioned I serve now as a volunteer staff uh, pastor, teaching pastor at my church. And I want to encourage you, some of this, this will be your calling. You'll be bivocational. You'll take a job, um, at least in part, to help your church. And as we look at Jeremiah, this is a book um, that we're looking at, this passage in particular, where there's a question that they're wrestling with. There's some, they, they, the people of Israel have been taken from their land of Jerusalem, from Judah. They're brought into Babylon, the Babylonian exile. And they're faced with a choice. They no longer have the temple. They no longer have uh, their community. They no longer have the promised land. And so they're talking amongst themselves about what are they going to do now that they are in Babylon. I mean, they are in the, the midst of an evil empire. And there's this discussion of do we, some say, we need to forget what's in the past. We need to assimilate into Babylonian culture. We need to leave Israel in the past. We need to assimilate, become like the Babylonians for survival. If God expected us to live distinct, he would have kept us in Israel. Now that we're here, you know, the the words of the Torah, they, they cannot be held. We cannot be held to that standard any longer. And some were saying, no, 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 we must, we must maintain our distinctiveness. We can't just move into Babylon and forget our, who we are, forget our identity. We must live outside of the city. We must maintain our, our, our separation from Babylon. We must not associate with them. We'll become ceremonially unclean. And so they were having this discussion, do we assimilate into Babylon culture and leave who we are, or do we uh, isolate ourselves and remain distinct? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 6, the word of the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Notice a couple things in this first thing we see. First off, that it was God himself who says, I sent you into Israel, whom I have sent to all of the people of Israel that I have sent into exile. He takes credit for it. He says, I put you there. God, in the midst of having them in a difficult situation, does not play defense. God does not say, I want you to hunker down. I want you to sort of wall up and isolate. But he calls his people to march. He says, move into this city. And so the first point is this, that God calls the children of light to live in dark places. God calls you and I to live in dark places. Two questions that have helped me as I've tried to discern the will of God for my life, which um, this whole other sermon is so difficult, but I know that's what you have the whole semester for. Two questions. One is this, what can I do to know God most? What can I do to know God most? And coming here, you made the decision to come here so you could know God. Don't get lost in your academic studies and miss Jesus. What can I do to know God most? And then second, what can I do to make God most known? What can I do to know God most and what can I do to make God most known? That's what's happening here. He says, move into the city of Babylon. Don't isolate yourself, but move in. And then he says this in Jeremiah 29, verses seven through nine. But seek the welfare of the city 
where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, the God of hosts of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. He says here is this. He says, I want you to move into your city. I don't want you to isolate, but I'm not calling you to assimilate into culture. I'm calling you to remain my distinct people even as you go forth into a dark place. This, this is the calling on our life. God does not call Israel to retreat, but to engage and to make the city a better place. In its welfare, you will find your own welfare. What would it be like for the cities of this world to say that about Christians? So here in Marion, what is it like to say the city is better because Christians are here, because the people of God are here, this city is a better place? I know from my breakfast meeting, that's the case. What would it be like for New York City, where I lived for the past year, to say, hey, we have a lot of problems in New York. We need to go to Marion and get some of the Christians there to move to New York because these problems need solving. In whatever area you're called in, whatever area, whether it be full-time church ministry or, or whether you're going as a banker, whether you become a lawyer, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or, or whatever you do, what would it look like to say, I'm going to seek the welfare of this city and through it bring, hope, bring light? The, third, the second thing we see is God calls his chosen exiles to live for the good of others. This is your calling. You're called to live in dark places for the good of others. Let me say this to you, students. I want you to, I'm, I'll speak plainly. You're not going to change the world by being cool enough to make Jesus cool. You're not going to change the world by gaining the world's approval. Becoming liked enough that you can influence others by them liking you and then you introduce them to a savior that disagrees with the way they live. I'll say it like this. You won't, you're not going to become famous. And some of you need to, need to die to this dream that we millennials suffer from of just thinking that by the time we're in our mid-30s, we're going to be famous and rich and, and everything's going to work out for us. We're not going to become famous. Tomorrow, none of you will remember my name. And that's a good thing. You shouldn't remember my name. The only name that matters is Christ. You won't become famous. But God can and will use you for the good of others. The other day, we were, I was having dinner with some friends, and we were talking about Billy Graham. And this discussion sparked up. After we had talked about all the wonderful things, the Crusades, the way he changed the world, we literally started having this discussion of, has, has he passed away? Like, has he gone on before us yet? You know, have we celebrated his, his homecoming? We had to Google it. Like, none of us could quite remember. And so, let it be a lesson to you. Even a man like Billy Graham, for all of us, there will be a day when 20-somethings are sitting around a table trying to figure out whether or not you've passed on before. Live your life in such a way that it doesn't matter what your name is. That you don't care if you get the recognition for the welfare of the city that you lived in or not. So, to summarize this point, we must engage both the, the church and the culture. So let me say it like this. We, there are problems within the church. And there is a movement of, of young influencers our age that are looking to give up on the church and move on without it. 
to sort of have some kind of relationship with Christ where we say, Jesus, we're, we love you, but we're not so crazy about your bride. I want to encourage you. I'm, and I'm talking about the institutional church. Don't give up on it. It has problems. It's had problems since Acts. You know, it's, everything's great for like two chapters. And then, you know, all of a sudden you read Corinthians and everything's falling apart. There's no like glory day in the Bible for the church being perfect. But students, don't, don't disengage from the church. Engage with the church, humbly learn, and lead in the ways that need changing. And don't isolate into the church. See the problems that are in the culture today and say, well, I, we just need to worry about the, you know, the kingdom. We're just worried about the church. We absolutely want to engage the world with this gospel that we have. And so there are, it's easy to look at generations before us and see problems or see ways that we could have done it better or this or that, mistakes that they've made. We're making the same mistakes. Be humble enough to learn from them. And so this is the, the message that, so far, that, that God calls the, the people of Israel not to engage the culture and lose their identity, assimilate into culture. He doesn't call them to isolate to remain distinct and withdraw from culture, but he calls them to engage culture and to remain distinct. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Israel's in a place, in this passage, that you've no doubt, know, this is in your uh, career planning center in the student center. In this passage, Israel's in a place with no hope in exile. God gives them this hope, he gives them, and can I tell you, we live as exiles here in this world. And God gives us a similar hope. When he says this, it's not that everything will turn out great for us. The promise made to ancient Israel applies to us today, but this promise is not to be fulfilled in this life. So often I hear Christians who claim this guarantees health, wealth, and prosperity. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, sort of prosperity gospel preachers, but whenever something bad happens to someone, what do you say? When something bad happens to someone you know, how do you counsel them? When the bottom drops off beneath your feet, the other trial that I went through as a freshman was a month into my freshman year. My dad, who at one point was a pastor on our staff at our church, was a hero of mine, my mentor my entire life, decided he wanted to hit the reset button on his life. Left my mom, left my 12-year-old brother, and me as an 18-year-old one month into my freshman year of college, and moved to another city, met another woman, and remarried. And it just, the bottom dropped off beneath me, right? It was a trial, not of facts. I didn't just need, I, it was faith. I needed, I needed the church. If you knew me 10 years ago when this happened, how do you counsel 18-year-old Michael? What do you say to me in that moment? What hope are you giving me? If the basis of your encouragement to me is that temporal life circumstances will improve, you have given me no hope. You have given me a false God. If the hope that you give for me 
Is that somehow that, you know, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. If you use that to mean things are going to turn around for you, how are you going to counsel the persecuted church in the Middle East? This promise, the promise of Romans 8, 28, the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not for this world. It is a promise, third point, that God calls the people of promise to live with an eternal an eternal hope. We may, in our nation, be on the wrong side of history, according to some, but we are on the right side of an eternal hope that we have in God. The suffering that you're going through, the suffering that you will go through in your life and your ministry, you can have confidence. You can have joy in the midst of suffering. As the old hymn says, we are ever singing, marching onward, victors, in the midst of strife. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14, the end of this passage, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God promises Israel, hope will end and being brought back to the land he promised. He gives them the gift of, of temporary, of earthly healing, but it's pointing to a greater healing. It's pointing to a greater hope that centuries later, Jesus Christ would be born. When Jesus came in John 1, it said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came and lived in a dark place. He lived in this world and his light, the way that he lived, being the very God, changed the world. That as he lived, he would live a life of humbly loving others and serving others, seeking the welfare of the city that would end up putting him on the cross. As he said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would end up living not for this life, but for the life to come. And just as it was God sent Israel into exile, God would end up sending Jesus to die on a cross. Acts 2, Acts 2, 22 through 24, um, it says this, men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter speaking at Pentecost. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The point is this, students, last point, that Jesus was called by God to die in exile so we could live with God in life eternal. And Jesus was the one who was cast out. He was crucified outside of the city walls, outside of the comfort so that you and I could be brought in. He fulfilled the promise of God to bring us back home. And we now have Christ within us. And he will be faithful to us. God turned his faith, face away from Christ so Christ could turn his face towards us. And we're heading to a day in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, uh, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice before the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. On the day, God will fully, finally dwell with us forever. There will be no exile. There will be no trials. There will be no divorce or attack on God's word. There will be only one famous person, and he is coming again. The book of Revelation and the Bible ends with these two verses in Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He is our eternal hope. This is the plan that God has for you, to live in dark places for the good of others with an eternal hope who, in Christ who died for your eternal future. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to be your people who hope not in our earthly circumstances turning around, but have an eternal hope, an eternal confidence in our future that is secure with you. May the cross, may your resurrection transform the way that we live. I pray for these students as they go out, as they study today, that you would fill them with your spirit, that they would be disciplined to to be trained in your word. I pray for their future life and ministry that they would be equipped with the good news, disciplined with your truth, Lord, that they would not shrink back from culture, but they would engage in culture and not be, not be shaped by popular opinion, Lord, but they would be on the side of history of the eternal God forever. We love you, Jesus, and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.